Um, I'm going to do readings from my first book, Mockingbird, this little one. And I'm going to read little clips from it so that they won't require a ton of contextualization. Um, but I will be, I'll read a bit and then I'll give a little bit of commentary and then I'll read some more. But it's all from the, the same book here. Um, I was a filmmaker, as Ian alluded to, and this book started out as a screenplay. And while I was working on it, I lived part-time on a little island up north, Lummi Island, and there was another filmmaker living on that island, and he and I struck up a somewhat incongruous friendship, and we would talk about the screenplay and about the film, and he would give me advice, because he actually knew what he was doing. He had directed um, The Empire Strikes Back, and he was... So it was, this, as I say, this wild friendship would get together on the island and talk about my film, because he was in his... 80s at that point, still ferocious, but um, willing to sit down and chat with me, and he kind of liked it, I think. So one day he asked me what my book was about, because at that point I was translating it from screenplay into a book. And I said, well, you know, it's about colonialism and privilege and taking things that don't belong to you, and he yelled at me. He said, Trimmingham, don't write the theme, write the story. And I thought, you can't sass the man who gave line readings to Darth Vader. You can't sass Yoda. But I did say, well, that is what the book is about to me. But the plot, he did not ask about the plot. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the plot line. Um, Mia is an out-of-work actress from Montreal. And she goes down to Havana with her somewhat self-absorbed ethnomusicologist boyfriend, Alex, who's writing a book on Cuban music. So that's why he's down there. And she tags along for the ride. Um, while there, she finds a baby whom she believes to be abandoned. And as much as I'm interested in the idea of theft, I'm also interested in a girl getting what she wants and the moral predicaments that can ensue when those two ideas overlap. So this first bit I'm going to read is from the, the very beginning of the book. It's like this. Sugarcane, a deserted street, a plastic bag taped to a broken window in an old white car parked the wrong way, far from home. A day too hot for birdsong. My head hurts from midday rum. You're looking at the camera, into the lens, at me. I'm not in love with you, not yet. So I can play it cool, clicking pictures from different angles, the last a close-up. You fill the frame. Everything else has fallen away. I'm not sure when the tenderness I felt toward you became an ache, an opening up, as if I contained not flesh and bones, but a cosmic space of whole whirling worlds. I think it was that afternoon, after I snapped that shot in the smothering heat of a crumbling town, I found myself shivering looking at you, shivering and then becoming still. I didn't know what to do, or rather, my thoughts scattered, glittering like a school of fish that flashes in the sun and then is gone, what remains is the water, the movement of waves, the undertow of instinct. I knew without thinking. My blood knew, so of course I acted. How could I not? The heart has its reasons. The heart has its reasons and its own velocity. We're all flung about in this storm. We cling to what we can. We save what we can. Who can judge, really? If you're staggering through great winds and rain trying to save what you love, what do hurled words mean? Liar, cheater. Thief. These sounds drown out in the din. Most people don't understand love, 
don't understand that the wondrous couples the terrible. Did you know that hurricanes spiral in or out like galaxies? The same forces that shape stars and storms surely shape us. We've forgotten that here in our civilized world. We forget that not everything is within our control. We forget about nature, about sacrifice, human and otherwise. For you, I would do it all again. I completed the very first draft of this book the night before my son was born. Um, it had been a complicated and perilous pregnancy, and so at week 40, the doctor said, we're going to induce you, and so they stuck an IV into the back of my hand, and the induction didn't work, but it meant that I had this really uncomfortable IV in the back of my hand all night, and I couldn't sleep, so I just stayed up and thought, I'm going to finish this book. So I banged away at my laptop in the waiting room, drinking hot cocoa from the vending machine, and the night nurse kept looking at me askance through her little plexiglass window. But by the time morning broke, I was able to write to the end, and I went off and they took my beautiful son out of me. And uh, that was great, but needless to say, um, that's what they do when they don't come out naturally. They take them out. But I had pregnancy on the brain, so um, I'm going to read a couple of pregnancy things. Of late, it had seemed that half of Montreal was pregnant. I'd been glad when the warm weather ended because the parade of bellies became less noticeable. These gravid women would float around town, smiling serenely, their palms cupping the unborn. I wished their wombs to be full of helium that all drift aloft, high in the air like so many smug balloons, and a dirty wind from the south would blow them toward Nunavut where they'd settle on an ice floe to continue their never-ending chatter of prenatal yoga and morning sickness and extravagant second trimester appetites for food and fucking. <laughs> Buses stopped, doors parted, seats empty, seas parted for these fat gals. I moved amongst the breeding hordes as if I were invisible. Somehow the idea of beauty got erased. Only fecundity counted. It was a great female conspiracy. One that somehow cowed men and marked the bearer of an unused womb as defective. I was accustomed to looking at motherhood as if I were standing on the shore, looking out across the northern ocean toward a country I knew was there, whose citizens looked like me and spoke the same language I spoke, a country I'd read about and heard first-hand accounts of, received postcards from, but one I still couldn't quite make out. Once I'd even held a ticket in my hand. I'd stood fast, growing old, gazing at the empty horizon as humpbacks breached in the middle distance, the groan of icebergs calving now and again, reminding me of the passage of time. My mother had seen such sights in her youth. I remember her drawing me a picture of a whale with a broken blue crayon. And now I'm going to read a brief but very different kind of pregnancy scene. My dad, Jack Doff, on a rock and the sun hatched me. A line I had stolen as a way of making light of aloneness. The mother's not there at all in that story. She's probably in Helsinki or Krakow, drunkenly playing the accordion. And I suspect the father takes off right after the self-inflicted handjob. It's just me, alone on a rock, trying to get warm. In the story, there's a hurricane coming. <laughs> Yay, hurricanes! <laughs> oh, <thanks. laughs> Urakan was a one-legged god. 
I remember a three-legged mud across the street from the red brick house where I lived with my parents. He pissed on the flounce of my Easter dress as I stood on the sidewalk holding my mother's hand. He didn't have to lift his missing leg. We were waiting for my father, who bought a new car, a Thunderbird. It's a Carib word, Kodakan, that spawned hurricane and orkin, a European windstorm. How does a storm gather? Does it round up that organ into Chinook, chase down the Kona and Levanto, call in the Nor'easter, organize them into trades, mistrels and gales, and stuff them into a bag, let them loose and let all hell break? Such was a gift to Odysseus, the wind sacked away, all but the mild west wind left free so that Odysseus and his crew could sail home. The crew, the crew, the crew, always causing trouble, they opened the bag thinking it concealed gold, and out the winds flew, causing a huge storm and blowing Odysseus off course. Of course. He'd have done better going it alone. There was a storm gathering. Idleness is the devil's playground. Not far from the doldrums, rogue winds were blowing hot and wet. Vapor was rising from tropical waves, shooting high into heaven, where it threw off heat like a party dress, tossed raindrops like pearls, sent cool, dry air, racing down to the choppy sea below. And this great sucking thing was starting to spin, to gain velocity and breadth, to move westward toward the Caribbean. In becalmed Havana, Alex playing the writer, me his well-worn consort, we were oblivious to the elements conspiring to lay waste to our days, to rearrange us. I am not saying that rearrangement is a bad thing, that being blown off course is always a disaster. Getting lost makes homecoming sweeter. And this last bit I'm going to read has to do with Mia. And again, as an out-of-work actress, she's, um, you know, she's white, she's wealthy, she's beautiful. I, I sort of burdened her with a bunch of privileges of which she's completely unaware so that she can frolic through life and wreak havoc blindly and blissfully. But she meets Carlos, who's a, a local musician. And unlike Mia's boyfriend, Alex, Carlos is a good listener, which is always tremendously mm -hmm. aphrodisiacal. And, um, <laughs> you know, and it is Cuba, for crying out loud. So here we go. Sometimes one moment contains both end and beginning, closing and opening. Sometimes I can feel myself opening up, feel God in my blood. The flamenco dancer's ole comes from Allah, a spark of the divine burning briefly on earth. What to do with such fire? Once we had kissed, I felt like I had broken the rules anyway, that I had crossed over. There's no crossing back, you can't undo. All you can do is move forward. <laughs> Bells were ringing, the sun was low. We were in a pocketed Eden, hidden by architecture and great wild green. There were out-of-control vines and potted lemon trees. Carlos handed me a canteen, sweet, thick rum. We passed it back and forth until we had claimed the last drops. There is a towel on a chair in the corner of the garden. It seemed both clean and dry. It must have been left by a tourist on a beach, the franchised cartoon character in obvious import. Carlos spread this on the tar paper floor. Brief commotion on the road below, a soprano practicing somewhere, sorrowful as an oboe, sends up her song in pieces, love notes. 
Carlos's slow eyes, dark opals, drink me in. Behold my lover, he's brown and comely, his Olympian shirtless body, a gold chain around his neck. He kicks off his shoes and our bare toes touch. The rum hits slowly like opium. Stay me with drink and comfort me with apples for I'm sick of love. Time's arrow stilled for a moment. As I lay myself down on the beach towel, Carlos pillows my head with his t-shirt. My oasis is seen from the floor. Yellow oleander, a climbing rose, an open window, rope dangling gallows-like from a hook. An ocean of sky going indigo so that everything seems to glow, hold no shadows. What has been frozen in me, my snow-packed womb, melts and flows as Carlos lowers himself onto me. The scent of cloves and soap and suntan lotion, a roebuck, a mountain goat, something wild come into my garden. His Roman nose in profile as he bends his head, unbuttoning me. He kisses the hollow at the bottom of my throat. A moan escapes from him, almost to bellow. He is a soldier or pharaoh on a solar throne. We are an explosion or cyclone. We are devoted. We are holy, holy devoted. No, no, no. Oh, we are done. <laughs> Thank you.